Welcome to the new Irish Writing Podcast on independent.ie. My name is Dermot Bulger. New Irish Writing, an acclaimed platform for emerging talent, has appeared in a national newspaper ever since being launched by David Marcus in 1968. It has now returned to the Irish Independent, edited by Kieran Carty, who has been the editor of the page since 1989. Hundreds of writers who were given their first chance to new Irish writing have since gone on to publish their first books, with many becoming leading figures in Irish literature. They include Anne Enright, Neil Jordan, Paula Mean, Joseph O'Connor, Colin McCann, Verona Gork, myself, Dermot Bulger, Mike McCormick, Sarah Bourne, Bernard McLaverty, Sebastian Barry, Dirty Madden, John Byne, Anthony Glavin, and many others. In a new initiative by the Irish Independent, New Irish Writing now invites the writer of each selected story to give a podcast reading of their work. We present the inaugural story in the series, Tag Is Out, read by its author, David Ralph. He wakes like a swimmer emerging from water, his head rearing up off the pillow, his mouth sucking hard at the air. He feels he has forced himself from an unpleasant dream, though when he tries to recall the dream, all that remains is a scene involving a woman, an argument, a glass falling and shattering on a hard surface. He is hung over, his head hammering, and he has to go on holidays today, a surfing holiday in Morocco. He has to pack and dig out his passport and find the phone adapter and get himself to the airport and the hundred other things. He strips back the duvet. Downstairs in the bathroom, he pops two painkillers, swallows with a big glass of water. In the living room, he draws the curtains, stares out the window. The day is calm, fair conditions for flying. The low-slung January sun is out, its pale light washing the sky a pearly grey. A black cat stalks across the road to the terrace opposite. He can never remember if it's good fortune or bad. He rushes round the house, showering, dressing, stuffing things into his rucksack. He is certain he is going to die on this trip. He has been stricken with this thought for days. For days, everything has seemed like an omen. He has pictured his funeral, the graveyard, the coffin being lowered. And he sees it again now with a stunning vividness. As he piles underwear, t-shirts, shorts, a few toiletries into his rucksack, he might as well be heaving shovelfuls of clay into his own open grave. His bag is packed in no time. His friend Francois is already there, waiting for him in Tagazout, a village along the coast past Agadir. A midwinter break to the gloom. Francois says it's a paradise for surfers, yoga enthusiasts, sybaritic party-goers. So why then does he feel he is on his way to perdition and not paradise? The only thing he wouldn't like people finding is a half-chewed Viagra in his bedside locker. The rest is just the usual stuff of a life. He really did have a lot to drink last night. Was there whiskey involved? He calls a taxi. He wants to get out to the airport early, avoid the stress of last-minute security. When the taxi exits the port tunnel, there are planes crisscrossing the sky, lorries pounding flyovers, cars racing by on ring roads, the whole world on the move. The terminal is chaos, bodies milling everywhere. He looks up at the announcement board. He has already checked in online, but the board offers up more omens. Check-in for his flight is Zone 13. Strangely, the queue through security moves quickly. A man beckons him forward. Usually he sets off the scanner, gets patted down, but not this time, 
not today. He ties his belt back up, his shoelaces, gathers up his things. He has a look inside his wallet to make sure. It's still there all right, behind his big fat wad of dirhams, the little white tablet, just in case. Past aisles of perfume shops, drink and souvenir outlets, he finds a cafe, buys a mineral water, a pot of expensive granola. He locates a table as far from the hissing, screeching coffee machine as he can, unpeels the pointless layers of packaging from the granola. He forces down a few mouthfuls. He can taste nothing. The bar across the corridor is packed, people pressing up against the counter trying to order drinks. He can't stomach the idea of alcohol. He pushes the granola away and notices his hands are coated in a prickly sweat. Maybe he could take half the tablet now. Instead, he takes out his phone, but realizes that scrolling through news sites is the last thing he needs. It's all just murder, mayhem, death. He looks for his gate. The announcement board says it's a seven-minute walk. He makes his way up ramps, downstairs, along travelators. He is gate 111. Outside, on the concrete, dozens of planes are lined up, fueling, baggage handlers busy with cargo. The sky is ablaze now. Drizzles of salmon bled with orange, ochre, flamingo pinks. Without a hitch, planes land, planes take off. He passes gate after gate after gate. When he approaches gate 111, he sees that people are already queuing to board. Already they're snaking round a corner, tripping over each other to get inside an iron canister that will javelin them in a miraculous arc up over France, on through Spain, and finally set them down on the edge of the Sahara. Finding a free seat, he vets the other passengers. There's children with their parents, older people in wheelchairs with minders. Mostly it's younger couples in hiking gear, probably trekking over the Atlas or out into the desert. There are some Africans on his flight and a lot of Arabs. But even if the plane makes it, he is certain something unspeakable will happen once he gets to Agadir. A wrong turn down an alleyway, murdered in a medina by a strung-out youth, or an accident on the coast road tomorrow, a minibus overturning, a single fatality. Or in Tagazut, dragged out to sea on a current and drowned. Why do these thoughts keep tumbling out? He inhales deeply, holds the breath for several seconds, releases slowly. The irony that he is trying to hurt himself is not lost on him. But would it be so bad? There would be a horrible moment or a series of such moments, a terrible reckoning. Then, in an instant, he would feel nothing, nothing ever again. As he exhales again, the snatch of the conversation in the pub last night comes back to him. He is declaiming at a table full of people, putting forth the idea that the world is, in fact, improving. Take every indicator he is saying, take them globally. Everything is getting better and not worse. Life expectancy is up, deaths from homicide down, cancer survival rates up. He can hear his own voice, slightly slurred and too loud. Why did he say these things? It's not as if he believes them. He closes his eyes, tries concentrating on simple sensations in his body, in his immediate environment. The pressure of his rump against the chair, the saturated red burn behind his lids, the concussive tuds of passing feet, the beep of boarding passes being scanned. But he can't keep the trick up because the trick isn't working. His whole body feels clenched like a fist, 
but the feeling is something deeper too. The feeling is more than physical. He opens his eyes, snatches his wallet from his pocket. The white tablet is bitter as it dissolves on his tongue. It should only be a few minutes before it kicks in. Several minutes pass and still the agitation fraughting inside him has not eased. Worse, his heart has started to fibrillate. What if the tablet was a dud? Or out of date? This would all be so much easier, he thinks, if he had someone to talk to. Someone here with him. There's not many left to board now. He will wait right until the end. Wait for the air hostess to call his name over the PA. And then the thought comes to him as he considers the blue liveried hostess with her hair pulled tightly back in a bun. He could just stand up and walk off. There is nothing and no one stopping him. He doesn't have to get on that plane. The elderly man opposite him, he notices, is talking to himself, a leg jerking out in involuntary spasms. He avoids eye contact with him. The thought of being seated beside that man for the next four hours, the seatbelt sign blaring and the carriage rattling through brutal turbulence, he can't. He just can't do it. He knows he will erupt into a silent scream if he steps down that gangplank and up onto that aircraft. At first, he doesn't believe he will do it. But the next thing, he is standing. His rucksack is on his back. There has been no slackening yet. This could be the moment, the one he traces it all back to, the start of the collapse of his mind. But he doesn't care. His legs are moving purposefully. He is walking in the opposite direction to everyone else now, streams of people passing him, motorized buggies bearing the infirm and sick. He wants to be away from here, away from this airport. He wants to be home, where he will be safe, or at least have the illusion of safety. He thinks about Francois, but distantly, as a problem that he will deal with later. There will be a need for a story, apologies, lies. He sees on an announcement board that his gate is closed. The decision has been made for him now. He shoulders past more people, and he realises with a kind of amusement that he could die in Dublin too. He wonders if security will make a problem for him getting out. He glances up at passing television screens to see if there's rolling news footage of a fiery inferno out on the runway. At security, a kindly woman informs him that he has to exit through gate 200, then go through passport control. She smiles apologetically when he tells her he has missed his flight. God bless you, love, she says. The custom official swipes his passport and asks, And where are you travelling back from today? Nowhere. Excuse me? The man looks up. I mean, I missed my flight. Ah, Christ, sorry to hear that. He slips him back his passport. Hopefully you'll get away tomorrow. Outside, birds are wheeling and dipping overhead in the last of the light that is draining from the day, others hanging still in the air. There's a 701 bus leaving in a minute. He takes a seat on the top deck. Traffic is heavy coming out of the airport. By the time the bus swings into Whitehall, he is confident the tablet wasn't, after all, a dud. He is feeling relaxed now, like he has stepped back from some kind of precipice even if there is a sort of shame that the chemicals can't wash away. He will never be able to tell anyone about this. Certainly not Francois. He takes out his phone. Francois, disaster, he texts. Missed my flight. Mad rush to gate. Could see plane on tarmac and everything. Fuckers wouldn't let me board. Went ballistic. Lucky I wasn't arrested. Francois reads his message straight away. He is online. But Francois doesn't respond. 
he disappears offline. And now, as the bus stutters down Drumcondra, he is remembering that white-collar boxing training he did a few years back, and how he bottled it on fight night, texted in, feigned an injury. He's still holding his phone. Francois still hasn't answered. It's not as if he can afford to lose more people. He goes on the airline website. There's a flight, rather unbelievably, for 43 euro the next day. Do it, he orders himself. Next thing, it won't be just flights you fail to turn up for. It'll be life you fail to turn up for. All his details are stored on the airline website, and in four or five clicks he has booked a new flight. The bus sets down on a column bridge, and he steps out. There's Westmoreland Street, Delir Street, Bachelor's Walk, the stretch of keys up and down the Liffey. All the familiar streets of his misery. He goes towards Abbey Street, shaking his head. If he had to stay here forever. He will walk home now, get some rest, reassemble himself for tomorrow. Because tomorrow the flight will be fine, and he won't get disemboweled by a Berber, and there won't be any traffic accidents, and he won't drown and he won't die. Tomorrow he will go to Tagazuth. New Irish Writing, edited by Kieran Carty and appearing in the Irish Independent on the first Saturday of each month, is open to writers who are Irish or resident in Ireland. Stories submitted should not exceed 2,000 words. Up to four poems may be submitted. There is no entry fee. Writers whose work is selected will receive 120 euros for fiction and 60 euro for poetry. You can email your entry, preferably as a word document, to newirishwriting at irishindependent.ie, all one word. Please make sure to include your name, address and contact number as well as a brief biographical paragraph. Only writers who have yet to publish their first book can be considered. Thank you and good luck with your writing.